pray with me as I lead us into God's presence. And when I'm done, I invite you to pray the Lord's Prayer with me using the words debts and debtors. Let's pray together. Our gracious and heavenly Father, how we long for communion with you today as we worship you. And we also long for communion with our Lord Jesus Christ as he opens to us the scriptures this morning and feeds us with the bread of life and then leads us to your table and to the bread and the cup that point us so visibly and forcefully to him. We anticipate the most satisfying of communion with him. And grant, God, that none of us this morning may be so blind that uh, we do not see his presence with us through his word and spirit, and none of us would be so deaf that we cannot hear his voice in his word, and none of us would be so heart-hardened that we wouldn't listen to him. We pray that together you might draw us into your own presence so that we might see the Lord Jesus more clearly and hear him more plainly and follow him more carefully. And so as we come to you, we pray in the words that Jesus taught us, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I'd like you to take a Bible, if you would, while you remain standing, and a chair around you. And I want to read a passage that we're going to look at in a moment. It's found in First Chronicles chapter 29. And I believe if you pick up a Bible on a chair around you, it's on page 300, or, yes, 357. First Chronicles 29, this is a prayer of King David. I'm only going to speak on the first four verses, 10 through 13, but I want to read the entire prayer, beginning in verse 10, First Chronicles 29. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand, and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. 
In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all that he may, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. Then David said to all the assembly, Bless the Lord your God. And all the assembly bowed, blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads, and paid homage to the Lord and to the king. And they offered sacrifices to the Lord. And on the next day offered burnt offerings to the Lord, 1,000 bulls, 1,000 rams, and 1,000 lambs with their drink offerings, and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. And they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. And they made Solomon, the son of David, king the second time. And they anointed him as prince for the Lord and Zadok as priest. Please be seated. Well, when my parents were young parents, they apparently had a firm belief that well-bred people used Amy Vanderbilt's book, Complete Book of Etiquette. There was a copy where we ate dinner, and in our family, we learned the proper way to set the table. The knife always points inward toward the plate. And the proper way to pass the peas, which is to the right. And uh, what to do with your arms at dinner, which is not to rest them on the table. And most importantly, how to write a thank you note. I was taught that when you write a thank you note, you don't uh, start with the words thank you. You don't say, dear Graham and Grandpa Lou, thank you for the chemistry set you gave me for Christmas. You have to warm people up. You have to let them know that you care about more than just the fact that they gave you something. So you write, Dear Grandma and Grandpa Lou, it was great to see you at Christmas. I wish that we lived closer so that we could see each other more often. Thank you for the chemistry set that you gave to me. That's the way to do it. Now, I soon noticed as I moved on in life that not everyone had been raised on Amy Vanderbilt. And after a few experiences of making myself obnoxious by informing people of the proper way to set tables and things like that, I soon gave up and melted into the vast crowd of the unwashed here in the United States. And I'm afraid that if my mother were alive today, she would pass a verdict on this generation, and it would be a quotation, paraphrase at least, from the book of Judges. In those days, there was no Amy Vanderbilt. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. <laughs> but what I want to tell you this morning is that unlike etiquette, there is uh, a proper way to pray, pray. At least there's a proper way to begin, and that's what we want to think about. We're beginning a series this morning on prayer. As Jocelyn mentioned to you, we're going to use this word, acts, and each letter stands for something, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. And the fact is, that's not something that comes out of the Bible. There's nothing, uh, Acts is found there, but it's a book. It's the name of a book in the New Testament. But uh, it's simply a memorable way to understand four basic aspects of prayer that the Bible does talk about. However, having said that, I want to note that the A should come first. 
First Chronicles 29 is a great place to see this. It's not the only place in the Bible, but it's a good place to start. This is a passage at the very end of David's life, after he had won great victories and expanded the kingdom and consolidated it and established governors in all the different regions and established a central seat of government. He wanted to build a temple, and God said he would not allow David to build the temple but his son Solomon would be able to build the temple. So David made it the last act of his life, the last thing he would be involved in, to gather all of the resources that would be needed in order for Solomon to build the temple. And so he himself offered out of the vastness of his own private treasury a, a number of gifts of gold and silver and precious stones and marble, all of the things that would be needed in order to build the temple. And um, then the people came forward, and all the different tribes gave a huge amount of things of the same character and quality so that they could build the temple in Solomon's day. And that's why the passage ends uh, where they made Solomon king a second time. There had been a co-regency for a period of time, but now the kingship was passed to Solomon. And what happens after that is David dies. He fulfilled the last purpose of his life. Now, what's recorded in the passages that I read is that David, after having amassed all of this material, he held a festival in Jerusalem, and the people came, and uh, they dedicated these things to the Lord for his use in the next generation, and David prayed. And uh, the prayers that are recorded in Scripture like this are very important to us, and they're important for two reasons. One is simply that um, they give us insight into how people spoke to God in the past. They're like a historical record, and they let us know this is what people thought about God. This is what they said. But there's a second reason why this is so important to us that sometimes people overlook, and that is that since the Bible is God's word for us, as the New Testament says, everything that was written in the past in the Scripture was written for our instruction. Since the Bible was written for us, God included these prayers in his book in order to instruct us how we ought to pray. Not, not exactly the words we ought to say, but how is it we ought to think about God and speak to God when he come to, come to him? And that's what we want to think about. Because we don't naturally seem to know the best way to approach God, God gives us these examples in the Bible. And they, they tell us that we should approach God first by recognizing his greatness. And that's what we call adoration. Note how he begins. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Now, that really is the address. He's speaking to God, the God of Israel, but then he goes on with the first part of his prayer, and he says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness. We might start prayers oftentimes by saying, please do this, because this is something that I need. The Bible often starts with prayers that say, you. This is true of you. This is what you are like. Now, when we pray, we should begin, it seems to be showing us, by acknowledging God's greatness. That's how we start prayer. We acknowledge God's greatness. Now, just think of the Lord's Prayer that we just prayed. Our Father in heaven, that's the address, hallowed be your name. 
the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, is that we would regard God's name, that is his character, his virtue, we would see that as being special, set apart, different from what we are like, above us, beyond us. Or you can think of Mary's prayer. It's found in Luke chapter 1 when she was, it was revealed to her that she would have a, a baby without having a husband. Um, she prays a prayer that's called sometimes the Magnificat. It's actually a prayer song. And, and you might remember how it starts. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. You see, she begins by acknowledging the greatness, the majesty of God. Or think about the believers prayed in Jerusalem. You read in the book of Acts, they began to experience persecution in the third chapter. In the fourth chapter, they get together and they pray. And how do they begin their prayer? They say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. The greatness of God. The majesty of God. Now, I have to say that it's not true of every single prayer that's found in the Bible. Some parts of the Bible record prayers, and it's not recording the whole prayer. It's recording specifically the petition, what was it was being asked for. Other prayers that are longer, and they seem to contain more of the prayer, don't necessarily start right at that point. But I would have to say that most frequently, the prayers that are recorded in the Bible start with some statement of the greatness of God and adoring him and magnifying him for who he is. And what I want to note is that in David's prayer, there are three aspects of God's greatness that he underlines, that we can at least pay attention to as to the kind of things. It doesn't mean we have to slavishly imitate this, but the kind of things that we ought to pay attention to when we come to God in prayer, things that would fall under the category of adoration. The first one, I'm, I'm just going to give the word magnificence. Magnificence. When we pray, we should acknowledge those truths about God that tell us about his greatness. So he says, verse 11, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Now, theologians uh, often divide thinking about God's character, his attributes, into two broad categories. And they might be called greatness and goodness. Greatness exalts what God is within himself, and it usually has to do with those characteristics of God that we cannot comprehend. They are unlike us, or they are something that we have, but we have in such a tiny amount, and God has in perfection. And then there's attributes of goodness, and, and God's goodness has to do with his relational qualities, the fact that he seeks to relate to us in a certain way. And the Bible begins prayers very often by beginning with God's greatness. God's greatness describes those things that are true of God that are unlike us. They bring a sense of bewilderment, even fear when we stop to think about them because we can't relate to them. And that's what I'm calling magnificence. The first thing is we recognize that God is magnificent. For example, you know, the Bible tells us God knows everything. That means that he knows everything that has ever occurred. He knows everything in the present, every thought of every person, everything that is going on, and he knows the future. But did you know, you can extrapolate from that, he knows one other thing. He knows everything that could have happened at any point in time. 
you know that one choice that one individual makes is going to have like a ripple effect, an effect on the entire world in some way. Imagine if, for example, your father had never met your mother. Reality would be different. Not just for you, but for everyone your father and mother ever touched in their married life. God knows everything there is to know. God is also present everywhere. Just think of that. He's present at every point in the universe. Now, if you take an elephant and you stuff him into your downstairs bathroom, if he'll fit in there, the elephant will be present everywhere, won't he? He'll fill every part of that tiny room, but there's one difference. God is not only present everywhere, but everything that is true of God is present at every point. That's not true of the elephant. God is present everywhere. I mean, you can go on. God is self-existent. He's dependent on nothing. He has all life within himself. He has no needs outside of himself. And that makes us think that creation is a marvelous thing because God, who has no needs, created something. And his goodness tells us that he loves that something. Now, uh, what I'm saying is that when we pray, we should remember we're not speaking to the man upstairs or the big man or something like that. People who speak in that way show that they don't no God at all. We're talking to the supreme ruler of the universe. We're speaking to God in all of his magnificent qualities. And what that is meant to do, in part, is to remind us how small and insignificant we are. It's like the spirit of prayer is, is that spirit you might touch on when you're on vacation and you're in some place where you look up at the stars at night and you have time and space to consider it and you look at the vastness of the realm that is above you and you realize how tiny and insignificant you are and that the Bible says God measures the heavens in the span of his hand, about four inches. That's not meant to be taken literally. It's that how tiny everything is to a God of infinite majesty. Now, there's a second aspect that he goes on and he underlines God's greatness and in addition to his magnificence, his otherness, he, he also underlines um, God's lordship, we might say, his control of everything that is going on. So David says, yours is the kingdom, O Lord, in the middle of verse 11. Yours is the kingdom, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. You rule over all. God's greatness involves, includes his sovereign involvement in every aspect of everything going on in the universe. That's important to see. Many people think that God is great, but they think of him as being so great that he, he's not concerned with all of the tiny things going on. He's just set the universe in motion. That's what I was taught as a child. He set the universe in motion and created all these wonderful laws and, and given free will to his creatures so that we can go and do all these things. And he goes off to think his important thoughts and do his important things. He sees the big picture, but he doesn't see the tiny picture, the, the things going on in individual lives. And yet, that's not how the Bible conceives of God. That's kind of like extending what we might think of the President of the United States, a person whose responsibilities are so vast that we have no expectation that he would have any idea. We wouldn't even want him to have any idea of what one individual is doing in one department. His, 
his function is to run all the departments at once, so he deals with only the upper-level people. We want him to do that, and we think, well, God is like that, just writ large, you know? He looks at the whole universe, but the Bible does not conceive him that way. See what David says? Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and the fact is he rules over all, not just riches and honor, but loss and sorrow as well. In the universities of our day, some people have this idea. It really came in the 1960s. At that time, it was called process thought. Process thought is that everything is changing constantly. Thus, God must by necessity be changing also. And if God is changing, it means that he's learning and he's growing. It didn't make much impact on Christians until later in the 1990s when people began to come up with this idea that is sometimes called free will theism. And it's the idea that uh, the same thing, God doesn't really know everything. He knows all the past, everything that's ever happened. He knows everything, everything at the present time, but he doesn't really know the future. How could he know the contingent acts of free preachers? How could he know what someone is going to do who hasn't yet done it and has been given free will? And all that sounds interesting, and so much could be said about it, but here's all that needs to be said. David doesn't pray to God that way. David doesn't treat God that way. David has no use for a God who can comfort him in his suffering and sorrow, who can be close to him, but who has no power. God, David would rather struggle with a God. Read the Psalms. He would rather struggle with a God who has all power and could change things going on in David's life. He wants a God who actually is in charge of things. And he's willing to struggle with that more than he is to worship a God with no power. So God's greatness has to do not just with his magnificence, his supreme qualities, but also has to do with his sovereign rule over everything so that you and I can say at whatever point of life we come to, God is involved in this thing. It's not a tragic accident that suddenly happened because God looked the other way for a moment. It is something that God allowed to happen in order to work in a certain way. I may not know what that is until I get to heaven, but I want to live that way. That's the kind of God the Bible tells us. And then God's magnificence, his lordship or control, and then he notes his loving presence as well. And this is where the greatness of God merges into his goodness. It's almost impossible for us to think about the majesty, the magnificence of God, with not also at the same time understanding that he's good. Because you see, you could conceive of a God, and many pagans have, of a God who is great and who's in control, but who isn't good. But the Bible puts all three of those things together. God is not only magnificent, beyond our comprehension, big. And he's not only in control, but he's loving. And he's present with us even while he does all things after the counsel of his will, even after he says in Isaiah, I know the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come, I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. At the same time, he is good toward those whom he draws into a relationship with himself. And what he says is, yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Can I just note for you, when David said that, one of the important things is to understand each passage of Scripture 
as it would have been experienced by those who were present at that time with their understanding, their knowledge. When David said, yours is the kingdom, he wasn't thinking of God's sovereign rule over the universe. He undoubtedly believed that. We know that from the Psalms. He was thinking of the kingdom that existed at that time, the kingdom of God on earth, the nation of Israel, of which he himself was the anointed king. And he was saying, all of these things that you have done, you have done them. You are the one who has brought about this nation and established it. We are your people. You have given us the way to worship you in this massive tent. And you have called us to build a temple after I die, David was saying, to build a temple for your name. And the prayer unfolds from this, God's loving involvement with those he's brought into relationship with himself. And after all, it's this element that brings us to the adoration that is the way people begin their prayers, that submission to God and acknowledging his magnificence and his control and his loving presence in the lives of those who follow him. Those are the elements of God's greatness. Now, let's ask finally, what does it look like to do that? What does it look like to acknowledge God's greatness when we pray? Obviously, we aren't make, meant to make a checklist of let's make sure when we pray we say these four things, something like that. That's not what prayer is meant to be like. However, it does tell us or show us many times that this is the way people started I think we have to say, first of all, when we think about what does it mean to actually make adoration the beginning of our prayers, first, what we're talking about is primarily an attitude. It's not always the word of our lips. Prayer starts with an attitude of submission to God. I mean, I started this morning noting these prayers in the Bible, the Magnificat of Mary, the prayer of believers in Jerusalem, the Lord's Prayer, all these, these different things that start with this note of adoration of God, acknowledgement of his greatness. But as I noted, not every prayer starts that way. But that seems to be the underlying basis. How can you pray to a God whom you don't conceive of as being worthy to hear the things that concern you? And so you come with this attitude that undergirds what prayer is. It's an attitude that God is great and worthy to be prayed to. So don't take anything that I've said this morning as, as like a way to correct everyone's prayers. You know, like dad prays at the dinner table tonight and kids you say when he's done, you know, I'd like to point out, dad, that you didn't start the right way when you prayed to God. That's not what we're meant to do. But it's meant to inform you rather about the rich attitude, the, the state of the heart that's meant to be the foundation of what it means even to look in our heart to God in prayer and speak to him. So realize it's primarily an attitude. It's not shown in saying the right words. It's meant in recognizing the greatness of God when you pray. And the second thing is you need to seek to learn how to express your feelings to God. I find that is so difficult for people. It's very difficult for people to express feelings of emotion, particularly those like myself that are not particularly in touch with our feelings. And uh, 
prayer is something that we often realize is a very intimate experience. So especially if we're with a group of people, it's like very uncomfortable to express to God the love and the submission and the adoration we feel, and yet that's such a, an important part of what we're doing. Often when I'm mentoring small group leaders, I, I really seek to impress them with the fact that a big part of what small group leaders are seeking to do is helping people learn how to pray. And that's a long-term task. It's not something that you give lectures on and they do it. But it's helping to break down over time in a smaller setting that natural and yet um, unfortunate wall that we have that says, I don't want to express exactly how I feel to God, not in front of all these people. But I've often told the story of the, the man still in our church who uh, had a, uh, came, came to Christ a number of years ago, he came to a Bible study that Laura and I started in some neighbor's house in our neighborhood. And, and uh, he had never been in a Bible study before, as far as I know, in a small group meeting in a home, so it was naturally uncomfortable to him. His wife knew the Lord, but he didn't at that point. And, and he came, and what I remember about him is he didn't say a word for about six months in the meeting. I mean, he would talk afterwards if you talked to him personally, but like he didn't open his mouth one time. And then after about six months, he said a few things. And, um, and then after about a year, after the first year that we'd been together, uh, he came to faith in Christ and he shared with the group a specific thing that happened, that when he came to faith, and he was an older person at this point, when he came to faith, um, he experienced this forgiveness of his father who had been dead for years and years but he'd had such a difficult relationship with his father. One of the things that he felt, and this isn't true of everyone, but one of the things that he felt was this tremendous uh, sense of releasing all of this anger that he felt inside emotionally towards his father. And he shared that with the group, and, and we marveled and prayed for him and everything, but he would never pray. And one day in the group, I, I said the first time that... Bill, that wasn't his name, but the first time that Bill prays, I'm going to get up on this coffee table and dance. I said it to the whole group, see. Now, don't try this at home, you know. This uh, took years of experience to know how to shame people into praying like that, you know. I mean, I'm not saying it was the smartest thing to do, but that's what I said. And what happened is it was still two or three months, and uh, he prayed one night, and I got up on the coffee table and danced. And no one who was present in that room will ever forget that. Because you see a person moving from not speaking at all to speaking, to sharing something significant, to opening their heart in prayer to God is such incredible movement that sometimes those of us who see it, we think of it as just something very small and insignificant. We don't recognize the incredible fact that a person has moved such a distance in such a short time. It's like watching a child learn how to walk. We take for granted that first step, like, you do that all the time. What's the big deal? To a child, that, that, that's incredible growth. And what I'm saying is that the point is not about dancing on coffee tables or anything like that. The point is you need to learn, to allow yourself to learn to lift your God, your voice in prayer to God, and to speak to him words of intimate feelings about him. You need to do that first yourself, which most people are uncomfortable with doing. But then you need to learn to do it with others. 
And hopefully that's what the fellowship of the church is for in people's lives as time goes on. Well, that's the first part of prayer. That's where prayer has to start. I'd have to say the other elements don't really go in any particular order. We put them in this order because it's memorable. But you do need to remember the first one is the first one. When we pray, we begin by acknowledging the greatness and the majesty of God. Let's bow to him. Our gracious God, yours is the greatness and the power and the majesty and the dominion. You alone are God. You have told us that you demand our exclusive devotion. We shall have no other gods before me. And the truth is, when we start to think about it, we could have no other God in reality since there are none. But we want no other God than you, and we pray that you would, in fact, make us your willing people. Teach us to follow you. And even now, as we come to you adoringly to your table, we pray that you would speak to our hearts in the way that we need, that we might be strengthened in our faith, confirmed in our intention to live for you.